if you add this data to the system, then potentially six months from now, when we're looking at on-site tools that we're utilizing, we might be able to find a way for you to do your job more efficiently and get you back to your family uh, earlier in the night. Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software Gray Tech Group. You're invited to join our construction innovation and digital transformation adventure with a mission to model the future for this great industry. My guest today is Blake Douglas, Director of Construction Services at Applied Software. Blake seeks to champion technology innovation to help bring projects to completion on time and under budget while driving real business results for construction teams. And welcome back to the show, Blake. It's uh, I looked this up before you, you came and was surprised that it's been a hundred episodes since last you were, were on the show back in uh, way back episode 63, which sounds like a little baby number now, but uh, welcome back. Could have sworn it was last year, but it's been too long. <laughs> yeah, it has been a while. Uh, happy to be back. Really excited to be here. Yeah. So for those who might not have been listening back into episode 63 and shame on you, maybe pause and go back and listen to that one first, but how'd you get into the construction industry? What's your, what's your background in construction? Yeah. My background is in mechanical engineering. I was a mechanical engineer by trade out of Colorado state, go Rams. And, uh, from there then went to work for a mechanical subcontractor in multiple roles, uh, was a project manager, project engineer, estimator, uh, sales and um, sales development. So numerous roles uh, throughout my time with them. Uh, from there, then I went to work for uh, an oil company in oil field, uh, doing hydraulic fracturing, as well as some business development in that capacity. And then from there, ended up uh, finding myself right at Autodesk, uh, working with them to stand up what was the BIM 360 platform, uh, what they called the next gen and working with clients to understand what their needs were for everything construction related from document management to model coordination, all the way through to any of the field management and project management solutions. And then found my way over to applied software as the director of services. Now that heading up a department of consultants that help our customers implement the software that they're acquiring through training, as well as working to develop any integrations that they might need for things like ERP solutions or other document repositories, uh, really just any connection between different pieces of software. I, I work with them to scope that out, build it for them and, and make sure that it's successful. Nice. So after having your hand in, uh, you know, several areas in construction, what, what was the draw into software and then eventually the, the consulting side of the, the equation? Frankly, it was really the, the time. Uh, it was hard work being in the field. Uh, I remember a lot of days getting up well before the sun was up and being on job sites and then getting home well after the sun had set. It just was long days, a lot of weekends working to make sure that everyone was on the same page and this was back in the day when you know mobile applications were just starting to become a thing. Uh, the cloud really kind of didn't exist. Uh, we had purpose-built applications on our Blackberries that were specific to our oh, company. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, it uh, it was cumbersome to make sure that everyone was on the same page at the same time. Uh, so getting into software really was kind of a passion project for me to help folks that were in roles similar to mine not have to do the the daily grind of just getting information disseminated out to the different teams. Uh, really just try to simplify their processes so that they can go about doing what they were trying to do, which is build buildings, uh, deliver excellent quality for their projects, uh, bring them in under budget for their owners uh, or for their estimators, and uh, really just allow them to do what they uh, want to do rather than what they have to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so one of the big buzzwords in the industry right now that you hear all the time is uh, collaboration. Uh, but I'm curious, what what do you think really needs to maybe change in order to take collaboration from the, the buzzword into the realm of actually being practical and, and bringing that collaboration to life and into the job site? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we've come a long way, especially from when I was in the field with all the various tools and things like that that enable us to, to be collaborative. Uh, but I think contractually, uh, that's going to really shift the mindset and how different entities work together, uh, specifically the design side versus the uh, contractor side, those teams working hand in hand earlier in the project, I think is going to lend itself to collaboration. And it will ultimately have kind of a trickle down effect where the architectural side, all their consultants, they're, they're working collaboratively today. Uh, but allowing those sub consultants to the architect to be able to have direct communication with the say general contractor, or even further down specialty subcontractors that can really just help with speeding up any type of issue that you might have getting to a resolution that will keep the project on schedule or uh, maintain the budget because we're not working ahead of things, running into errors on the job site because we weren't sharing uh, the information that everyone had at the same time. So I think the contracts are shifting that. Uh, we see that a lot in Europe. Uh, we're working with a lot of collective delivery projects where, you know, hand in hand with the owner, the architect and the, the contractors or contract managers, uh, they're all trying to be on the same page to really just get the project to completion. Mm -hmm. Um, maybe let's back up to, and, and define some terms. So what is, what is real true collaboration and construction look like to you? Yeah, to me, I think it's just everyone being on the same page at the same time and working towards a common goal. You know, a lot of times the architect of their goal is to deliver a great design that's going to be useful to an owner. And they don't necessarily think about how are we going to build this design? And for the contractors, they're constantly thinking about how do we mitigate our risk and deliver a, a project, a, a building that the owner wants and is going to be able to use. So as we bring those two goals to kind of a common space where there's a lot of overlap and we want to deliver a great project for the owner uh, and we need to do things like constructability reviews very early on so that that design, we know it can be built uh, rather than just designing it and saying, hey, throw it over the fence. You guys go figure out how to build it now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think collaboration really is making sure that everyone's aligned in their goals so that they can achieve that common goal as efficiently as possible. 
how do you create that uh, alignment through through good communication to make sure that everybody is on that same page so that it's not just the I'm going to throw the you know model over the the fence and it's your problem now you redesign it however you want and, and put the details in that, that you need and I don't care I did my part it's your problem now yeah, yeah I, I think the contracts are helping um, I think owner involvement is also uh, really lending itself towards collaboration uh, owners are kind of that friendly mediator if you will between what was the the very separate parties in the design space and the the construction space mm -hmm. so owner involvement uh, we're seeing it more and more especially as the tools that are used specifically software tools are used uh, throughout the different project life cycles and it spans the life cycle with the same information and the owners are then taking ownership of that information and that that information sharing mm -hmm. so i think having the ability to even share information in real time with a number of different entities um, and different people within those entities, I think is becoming easier just through technology. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you see that that evolution playing out over the, the next few years on the the role of the, the contracts and how they're changing and the, the owner involvement as well? Yeah, I think with uh, BIM execution plans and the level of detail that are being required in Europe, I think we're going to start to see that a lot more over here in the United States, primarily driven from things like Digital Twin. I think on our uh, last podcast, we talked about that quite a bit and mm -hmm. the, the way that the market is shifting to have requirements around Digital Twin so that we can maintain and operate a building uh, better, more efficiently. So the the vast majority of the cost of building ownership comes in the 30, 40, 50 year lifespan of actually owning the project, uh, sure. owning the building rather than just building it. And so when things like um, connected devices, the internet of things become more and more prevalent in building spaces, having that digital twin environment to connect to all that data uh, to understand how your building is operating, uh, to do things like preventative maintenance so that you can really stay on top of potential issues that you might run into for your building. All of that is lending itself towards having this digital twin environment, which then in turn requires having a high level of detail in your design and a collaboration between the design team and the contracting team to ensure that what was designed is actually being built and what was built is actually being almost redesigned for that handover of that digital twin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thinking about the, um, the, the, the skeptic out there that is like, well, buildings have been being built for, you know, a very long time without all being in the same ecosystem, being in the same environment. How do you, how do you speak to them? Why does it even matter to have everyone in the same ecosystem from concept to turnover. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't, right? We've proven that we can do it without having it, without having a collaborative environment. Uh, but then that's where things like litigation come into play, where this person's suing that person and everyone's pointing fingers and mm -hmm. nobody's actually getting things done. Um, but we are, right? We're getting things done, maybe slower, uh, might be uh, less cost effective, uh, might not be as designed, or uh, it might not be the most efficient use of resources. 
Uh, I think we've gotten to a point in the industry where we've recognized that, okay, we know how to build buildings. We can do it pretty well. And now how do we fine tune it so that we use things like less resources, um, whether it's people, we're seeing the labor shortage issues across the board, uh, whether it's materials kind of lending into the sustainability and, and green buildings, uh, or whether it's just, hey, we want to have a repeat customer in the owner that we're working for. If we can prove out that we work really well together on very separate sides of contracts, it can lend itself to winning more work with them because they know that it's easy to work with both entities, that we work together uh, with the architects or we work together really well with the contractors that, that you're working with. Uh, it really just lends itself for everyone to benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so kind of leaning into that, that fine tuning aspect of it, one of the, the keys I think to that is around the data side that is really a very relatively new thing coming into construction, the amount of data and the the quality that is coming in from these different software applications is is huge. And that's what's helping to fine tune. Uh, but how do you go about solving the very real issue of bad data in, bad data out, and you're probably then in a worse position than what you were to, to start it if you don't have that, that quality data flowing in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, data is the name of the game right now with construction. It's how we're really making decisions because you can't be on every job site 24 seven um, and you know being there visually seeing things, actively monitoring things. Uh, the data is kind of a historical record of what has happened and can be good for informational purposes to make decisions going forward. Uh, like you said, if you have bad data, you're going to have bad data out and you're going to make bad decisions. So I think it's a, it really is a, a shift in mindset for the people that are on site for why is this important? You know, if you just say, Hey, you've got to put this in your iPad or you've got to record this. There's no why behind it. What is the impetus behind a seemingly tedious task? If we can convey to them, Hey, if you add this data, to the system, then potentially six months from now, when we're looking at um, staffing concerns, or we're looking at how we do things, if we're looking at on-site tools that we're utilizing, we might be able to find a way for you to do your job more efficiently and get you back to your family uh, earlier in the night, um, or allow you to do things that maybe you otherwise couldn't have done before, didn't know how to do. We can. Uh, invest in things like training because we know that the data says if we do this it's going to benefit both the employee and the company so i think really just getting that information out around why we're doing this data collection uh, i think is really going to shift a lot of the folks on site in in terms of oh gosh what do i have to do to just check this box or uh, should i actually put meaningful information into the system because it's going to ultimately be meaningful for me in the long run. Bridging the Gap is powered by Graytech Group. As a global BIM and modeling expert, 
Great Tech is dedicated to empowering construction and manufacturing professionals to digitize and industrialize their processes to improve performance and build a sustainable tomorrow. With more than 30 years in the industry, they know how to be your partner in a world where change is the new normal and always strive to enable their customers to gain an increased competitive advantage to model the future. Visit greatech-group.com for more information. Mm, I think that's huge and key to it uh, of making the the data and the, the need for the data real for people. And then to, as you brought up with your example, make it personal to them of, yes, this is, here's the business reason why we're doing it, but here's why you individually should care because let's be real. You know, people could see the business case and they're like, well, it doesn't really impact me at all. So I don't really care. I, I get it for them, but I don't really care. Uh, but if you make it on that, that personal and connect with them on that, that level, they're way more likely to do it and then become a champion for it too, which is really the, the name of the game and, and helping move the ball down the field is building up those champions. Exactly. I mean, you always hear playing for the front of the Jersey, right? Cause the, the team logo is on the front of the Jersey, but the, the name is still on the back of the Jersey as well. And so yeah. if you say, Hey, this is going to be great for the company. Okay. Well, what if I leave the company in two months or what if uh, the company lets me go in two months, then, okay, was all that for not. Um, so really to, to tie it to the individual, the name on the back, I think really shows that the company is looking out for its employees. And then in the long term, as they continue to collect data from those individuals, um, they can positively impact all of those individuals' lives uh, to, to really increase their want and desire to work for the front of the jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I like that that illustration of it too because, yes, the, the name on the back of the jersey should be playing for the, the front of the jersey, but in order to build the the culture that I, I think a lot of people in the industry are are frankly demanding and, and helping push in, the, the front of the jersey is also part of that team and has to play for the back of the jersey as well. So it, when you have that kind of symbiotic relationship of the front playing for the back and the back playing for the front, you're really able to – uh, you know, just get a, a ton of uh, improvement and really start seeing those um, those huge. I'm blanking on my word. I, I just keep thinking incremental, but I want the opposite of incremental. I want big changes. <laughs> uh, anyway, I can't think of the word right now, but you get big changes. <laughs> uh, so, do you think being able to to have the the data and this kind of transparency that that we're talking about it, is that going to help? really bring in more trust in, into the process, not just within the, the company, but I'm, I'm thinking with the different stakeholders of there's distrust between the architect and the GC and the, the subs and every part of the uh, construction lifecycle equation. Does this transparency help kind of start bridging some of that, that trust deficit? I think so. I mean, the, the saying the proof is in the pudding kind of holds true here, right? Because you can say definitively, based on historical data, we know this to be true. We know that if we do this, this is going to happen. If we change this, this is likely to happen. So I think having that uh, be very cut and dry uh, helps to lend itself towards, all right, if we're all working towards this goal 
and we know we have option A or option B, and based on data, one of those options is better, we're all going to collectively go about achieving the goal through the, the best option or the best mode possible. Mm-hmm. So I think that it really just uh, aligns everyone's thought process a little bit better because it's not just hearsay. It's not just some anecdotal, we've seen this once before. It's true data. It's real factual information that we can make decisions based off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how do you think the construction industries is going to be changing and, and looking differently if we kind of expand out and look to 2032, so 10 years down the road, what's different on the industry? Yeah, I think uh, I think the big data push comes from manufacturing, right? There's a, been a lot of data historically uh, in manufacturing. You can think about it from a, uh, a car manufacturer, for example. They have tons of data on all their various suppliers, uh, all the various tools that are used to create their goods, um, all of the supply chain that's associated with it. There's a lot of data there. And so what they're trying to do is become as efficient as possible so that they can get products out to their uh, users, their buyers as quickly as possible. They can make them still quality products, but they can decrease the price of those products. And I think that's really kind of the next big shift in construction is, all right, we're gathering all this data now, how do we build these buildings better, faster, uh, more efficiently for the owners? And uh, we, we see that with how they're shifting, actually building buildings, right? They're kind of taking on some of those manufacturing qualities and doing things off-site, shipping it to the site, uh, doing a lot of prefabrication, and then just site assembly. I think that's going to become more and more prevalent. And that also lends itself towards needing to have a collaborative uh, environment with the design teams early on so that they can get the level of detail that they might need out of a model so that they can actually uh, manufacture some of these products. Uh, They can manufacture them quicker because they might need lead time based on supply chain that we're all seeing kind of that crunch in right now post pandemic. So uh, it collectively gathering all the data uh, is really going to drive to see information as quickly as possible for projects so that we can do things as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, when you bring up the the prefab and the, the modular side, I feel like Europe and, and other parts outside of the, the States are doing some really cool stuff on that front. What are some areas that the, the U.S. can learn from other parts of the globe and then vice versa. What can the U.S. Uh, kind of export knowledge out of the industry that we're doing well that other parts maybe aren't as uh, advanced? Yeah, I, I think uh, let's take Europe, for example. Um, it's a very well-established, it's it's um, older in terms of the buildings, the geography, the kind of makeup and, and structure of what a site might look like. So oftentimes they're constrained strictly on space in building new buildings. Uh, whereas here, you know, we're building a lot of buildings in a lot of empty open space. And so I think we can learn from the fact that they need offsite fabrication because they don't have anywhere to do it on site. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's something that is unique and, and is not a problem here yet. 
but certainly can be. Um, we're starting to see a big push back to cities and uh, a lot of folks moving to those cities. And in turn, you're, you're seeing less space for those people and new projects to go up. There, there's a, a project right outside my building right now, and they're having to shut down the roads on a regular basis because they've got to pull in uh, big concrete mixing trucks. Um, they've got secondary cranes that they're bringing in, things like that, that if maybe we had done a little bit more prefabrication, if we had accounted for some of these site conditions, and maybe even looked at some uh, 4D modeling over the course of the project schedule, we might've recognized that, hey, we can save shutting down these roads by 20% if we build this or that offsite and just bring it on. So mm -hmm. uh, I think that's something that, that will be unique to us. I think one thing that um, will be interesting for the rest of the world to learn from us is some of the downstream uh, technology adoption that we're starting to see. We're starting to see kind of a, a Shopify, if you will, of your building, uh, where if you've got that digital twin and a VAV, B, VAV box breaks, you may have the ability to go right into your digital twin, order it directly from the supplier that installed it and have it scheduled to be installed all with the click of a button without having to talk to anybody getting a very accurate quote. So getting things done very, very quickly. I think uh, in Europe, they're, they've got this great model information, they've got their LOD requirements, and then they kind of just sit on it. They don't really do anything with it. Whereas we're starting kind of behind the eight ball with not as detailed design, but then we're doing a lot more uh, with the model. We see that with things like um, solar, uh, analysis and automated blinds. Uh, we're seeing it with solar analysis just for uh, solar arrays and how those should be positioned on buildings and maybe uh, rotating them or moving them throughout the day. Uh, so we're really just trying to make the, the building as smart as possible uh, by way of any type of model information that we maybe already had. Mm -hmm. Nice. What do you think the, the next step then is in the industrialization of construction maybe we'll focus it in here on the states yeah i i think that um i think one of the big pushes is going to be the labor shortage right uh not having as many people available to go out on disparate sites to do things like welding uh, but to have them at a singular site to do welds and they're welding for four or five different projects over the course of a day Mm -hmm. makes them extremely efficient. And I think that we're going to drive to that strictly based on costs. It's really expensive to hire somebody and have them drive around to multiple sites to accomplish like similar, uh, similar tasks. Mm -hmm. And if we can minimize, you know, things like setup time or uh, transition time or even time to move between sites, if we can minimize that as much as possible, I think that's going to lend itself towards industrialization, centralizing a lot of the production and then distributing uh, from there. Yeah, no, that's good stuff. Uh, so what does innovation mean to you then? I think innovation means uh, thinking about things in a way that no one has ever thought about them before. And 
being willing to test it and fail and learn and then adapt and test it again and fail and learn and so on and so forth. Right. I think being innovative is something that you can't force. Uh, it's something that isn't going to just happen. You have to work at it and you have to, to shoot for it. And uh, you have to have a goal behind it, a, a why behind this. If uh, you're just being innovative to be innovative, you may come up with something that's fantastic in your mind, but in practice, it, it doesn't really change anything or uh, affect anybody in, in a positive way. So uh, to really go out and be innovative in my mind in the construction space is, hey, how do we challenge that status quo of building buildings very efficiently or I guess effectively uh, for the last hundred years in the same way? And how do we flip that on its head and do things better? Mm -hmm. I, I like the the cycle of failing. I don't like the cycle of failing, but I, I like uh, uh, that that mental image, at least when you were talking of, you know, you hear so much on continuous learning, but you can't really have continuous learning without continuous failing. And it's this whole cycle of you fail and then you learn and then you fail and you learn. And in that trajectory, hopefully you're, you're getting better. And that, that chart is, is going, you know, up into the right the, the whole time. But, um, it's, it's an interesting cycle of you're, you're going to have to get comfortable in, a cycle of failing and getting better. Yeah. And, and that failure isn't necessarily, you know, a complete disaster of a project, right? It's, right. <laughs> it's small failures that maybe you failed in one area one week and then the following week you're redoing it and changing one small aspect of it. Um, I have some friends that work in the aerospace industry and, you know, they test one part five, six, seven times to failure, just to make sure that the data that they have, the model that they built, they know is correct. And so I think that's something that's kind of shifting into the construction space is, okay, let's, let's try this. And if it works well, then we know we can continue on with it. If it doesn't, we make minor slight tweaks to the process, uh, the tools, the people, and then we try it again. And I think that's really what's going to continue to advance the industry as a whole, rather than just being stagnant and, and sitting on our laurels and saying, all right, yeah, the way we've done things, it's been fine. It works. Let's just stay here. Mm -hmm. That is a, it's a muscle that being okay with failing is a muscle that you have to, to work in and get finely tuned to start mixing my metaphors here. You, you have to finely tune that to be sensitive enough to see those little failures and catch them, yes. adapt, tweak them before they become the giant fail of a, a project at the end. Cause then it's, it's way too late and good luck trying to figure out all the little pieces that you could have fixed along the way. Uh, but if you can be really sensitive to, Oh, this didn't work the way I, I thought in this little form, tweak it and test it again. Um, I mean, that's huge. That, that's a game yeah, changer right there. Exactly. So how do people find out more information of what you're, you're doing with the applied and connect with you? Yeah, we have a number of webinars that we're hosting um, around the Autodesk Construction Cloud environment. Those are just some of the tools that can be used to gather the data, um, make informed decisions based off the data, and then ultimately 
uh, have a, a digital twin environment of the model and the, the data collectively. So we've got some webinars associated with that. Um, you feel free to find me on LinkedIn and message me there. Uh, happy to communicate with you all and uh, maybe answer any specific questions that you have around your job site, your projects, your needs. Uh, and then obviously at, at asti.com, uh, we've got a plethora of information there around the construction industry, the various eBooks, uh, recorded webinars from uh, the past that we've done that you can review. So any number of those ways to, to reach out, feel free to do so. Sounds good. Final question for you. If I could give you all innovation power over the, the industry and you could snap your fingers, change and innovate one aspect of construction, what would you innovate? Um, I would say that the Internet of Things across the board, uh, Internet of Things for people on site, Internet of Things for uh, technology that's going into buildings. Uh, we see it with Apple, right? They've invested a ton of money into home automation. And I think as we see more of that automation transfer into uh, commercial buildings, large buildings that we're building out, uh, as well as, you know, things like safety internet of things around vests and hard hats on site. I think those will just benefit everyone all around from uh, the personal safety of, of workers on site on the day to day to uh, making lives easier for the occupants of those buildings uh, as they occupy it on the day to day. Awesome. Good answer. <laughs> Blake, thanks so much for taking the time and, and joining the show and Hopefully we'll have you back before another hundred episodes again. <laughs> Appreciate you taking the time. It's always fun to talk to you, man. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate it. And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, fine tuning the built environment involves people and materials with the goal of creating repeat customers. The key to pulling this off is quality data across the project lifecycle. Second take, in order to help ensure everyone in the company is doing their part of inputting good data, you must make it real for them on the why, but even more importantly on how they benefit personally. It goes back to the conversation Blake and I had around the back of the jersey, playing for the front of the jersey, and the front playing for the back. When both sides equally view themselves on the same team, magic happens. And finally, I loved what came out of Blake's innovation answer around being comfortable in a cycle of continuous failing that leads to continuous learning. As I said, learning from failure is a muscle that takes hard work to build, but wow, it can create exponential growth when it happens. For the record, exponential is the word I was trying to think of in the moment with Blake. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software, Great Tech Group, at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining the conversation on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant. Edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2022.